Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Nova Reddy. This is Stephen Robles and we have Dr. Dan back on the show this week to answer some more questions. He and Seth talk about updates to the coronavirus situation and all that's happening in the world. Before we get to that interview, I'd like to remind you once again about Impact 360. Now is a great time to check out those online courses from Impact 360, especially if you're that high school to early college age. Check out those online courses at impact360.org. They have the courses on truth, worldview, and defending the resurrection. It's a great time to go through those courses as a family and learn kind of the basics of apologetics all together. You also get $25 off when you use the promo code FREEMIND. And in addition to those online classes, I want to remind you about their gap year program that they've recently launched. This is a program for graduated high school seniors. Before going into college, they have the opportunity to go to Impact 360 for nine months in this gap year program and learn all the basics and foundations of Christianity, worldview, truth, everything so they can be prepared to defend their faith and engage with culture once they head off to college. So I encourage you to check out that gap year program. You can get your application fee waived if you use the promo code FREEMIND. So you can apply your high school student, high school senior right now, get that application fee waived with the promo code FREEMIND, and check out those online courses as well. Same promo code FREEMIND to get $25 off. And if you could take a moment to give us a five-star rating and comment review in Apple Podcasts, that would really help us be discovered by others looking for content like this, maybe others just searching for Worldview and Podcasts on Truth. So if you could, go to that Apple Podcasts app on your iPhone or go to iTunes on a Mac or PC and give us that five-star rating with a comment. We'd really appreciate that. Now again, here is Seth and Dr. Dan talking about updates to the coronavirus situation. Hi, Dr. Dan. Uh, so how are things going? What are the latest? And I guess, are you surprised by the way this is all developing? Uh, not surprised at all. The stats uh, basically haven't changed since we talked last week. Uh, the death rate for the United States is still in the, you know, the, the little over the 1.5 range. Uh, it's been as low as 1.2 and it's up to 1.7 uh, today. Uh, South Korea is 1.5, so and, and New York City uh, is 1.77 today, or as of last night's numbers. Uh, so we're, we're still about, uh, the United States as a whole is 1.6, uh, New York City itself is 1.77, uh, so that's not unexpected. Uh, the n- total numbers, though, are still low compared to what we've seen with other diseases. Now, that certainly is because we've shut everything down. Uh, the social distancing, the quarantines, all of that is certainly helping to decrease the numbers of infected people. But at what cost is the uh, ultimate question? Yeah, have you has the has the actual spread of the virus surprised you in any way, or has that kind of been on schedule as well? Is it still like I think you said eighteen percent the contagion rate or something like that? Has that kind of exploded, or is it about the same and what you expected? The contagiousness, uh, the what we call the infectious rate, based on how they calculated it with H1N1, the infection rate uh, for H1N1 was in the 18% range. Our infection rate still, as of right now, in the United States uh, is 0.03, if you compare that to the total population, which is what the infection rate for H1N1 did. Uh, so the infection rate is still very low. In fact, in New York City, 
the infection rate in New York City is still only 0.35% compared to H1N1, which was 18%. So the infection rate is still very low, but it's low because we are doing such aggressive measures. So the infection rate is still extremely low compared to other diseases we've seen in the past. Okay. Okay. Well, that's helpful. Um, the the thought the thought I I just uh, actually popped up on my on my notification thing here today. CNN put out an article saying Dr. Fauci, and maybe you can talk about who he is and what role he's playing as well. But Dr. Fauci says there could be um, any you know up to a hundred thousand deaths between two hundred thousand he thinks in the U.S. Um, have you I don't know if you've ha- if you've happened to come across that I think it just popped up here a minute ago, but. What do you think about that um, prediction? And maybe tell us a little bit about what your thoughts are on Dr. Fauci and how he's kind of weighing this stuff out. Well, Dr. Fauci is the lead uh, physician in charge of the task force that President Trump has put together. So he's knowledgeable. He's a holdover from several other administrations. And, you know, he certainly is on top of things. Uh, He is basing predictions, though, on assumptions that have little validity based on what we're currently seeing. So what was the number he quoted? So he said here, um, this is the quote. He said, whenever the models come in, they give a worst case scenario and a best case scenario. Generally, the reality is somewhere in the middle. I've never seen a model of, of the disease of the diseases that I've dealt with where the worst case scenario actually came out. They always overshoot. Um, but then he goes on to say, I mean, looking at what we're seeing now, you know, I would say between 100 and 200,000 deaths, but I don't want to be held to that. He added, uh, he said, adding that the U.S. is going to have, quote, millions of cases, unquote. I find that interesting since we're now several weeks into uh, this pandemic. And at the present time, we've got 1,700 deaths in the United States. Uh, and he's talking, you know, of a factor of more than 10 times what we're currently seeing. And we're, we've done all the measures uh, to prevent the spread. And we know that likely it's going to peak. And with the warmer weather and things, it's going to subside on its own to some degree. So the odds of seeing that number that he's quoting is extremely unlikely. Well, and you know, it, it is it is uh, CNN.com, so there's probably a 99.88899% chance that they have uh, misrepresented his quote and taken it out of context. But, you know, that did just pop up. But a friend of mine who's also an apologist, he posted something interesting this week, and, and I think it was an article. I didn't get to look at it, but it was called The the Death of the Expert or something. And, and he was just kind of noting how people were, the you know, just general population, lay people, they were kind of fed up with the experts, quote unquote, because especially with the elite, they kind of give these prediction, these models, and that causes all this chaos. And then they walk it back later, like kind of in a hidden way. Nobody ever knows. Nobody's held accountable. Yes, they do. It's It happens every day on the in the mainstream media. That's right. what's so frustrating. Right. No one presents the data in a realistic light. Right. And so correct me if I'm wrong on this, but this is my understanding. The, the Ferguson model that came out of the UK, it was a British scientist who released 
a model, um, and it, he predicted uh, like 2.2 American deaths, half a million British deaths based on the coronavirus this, that would happen this year. And that, if, if I'm understanding it right, was either the only or the main model that most of the people reacted to. And now he's walking it back saying it may be, you know, in the just in the low thousands or something like that. And, and p- people don't seem to be talking about that very much in the mainstream media. Am I misunderstanding that in any way? Can you, can you maybe explain how that happens with the scientific world feeding into the the media and the politics of it all. Well, as our friend Frank Turek says, you know, science says nothing, scientists do. So all the data is out there. How you interpret it and how you put it together and how you create the narrative is an individual choice. And this particular person Uh, created the initial narrative and the model based on worst case scenario if nothing would have been done. In other words, you let everyone do exactly what they always did. You basically didn't treat anything. You basically let them walk around and and infect other people, um, not quarantine. Worst case scenario, if you did that, sure, it could have been a lot worse. But yes, he's backing it off because what we've done to help mitigate the impact of this is tremendous. And the numbers show that what we're doing has had a huge impact when you compare it to the H1N1, which we saw back in, you know, uh, 2009. So you you actually would say maybe his model wasn't off. It was just based on the idea, though, if we do nothing. So maybe are you saying it wasn't so much his fault as the way people misused what he said? Oh, it's correct. It's the way people misused the, the data and what he, he initially published. Uh, and again, he published a worst case scenario, do nothing type of scenario. Okay, no, that's, that's helpful. And so, so let's, let's also put this in perspective, Seth. You know, in the United States, every day, every single day of the year, 365 days a year, we have uh, approximately 100 people die from accidental fall. We have 110 people die every single day, 365 days a year from motor vehicle accidents. We have 170 every day die from accidental overdoses. That's every day of the year for 365 days a year. We are currently only at 1,700 deaths. Now, you put that in perspective as well. When you talk about intentional abortions, we do 1,600 abortions a day in the United States. 1,600 a day. Your state in California does 363 a day on average based on the 2017 data. That's every day we're killing 363 kids, and we're worried about 1,700 deaths from this virus. I mean, when you put things in perspective and, and how much this is blown out of proportion, you still have to come back to the question, what's the underlying narrative? Why, do we, why are we doing this? Yes, it's a serious disease. Yes, it's going to be seen in certain populations. We know the older folks are the ones who are really impacted by this, and we we need to do aggressive measures to protect our older folks. Absolutely. And, you know, we're going to see it in populations like New York City, and, and we need to aggressively manage those outbreaks. But to shut the entire country down when you're seeing, you know, uh, isolated types of really big impacts, 
I just think we're doing the wrong thing. So can you help uh, listeners um, understand why are major cities or certain cities, um, why is it spreading more so in the big cities? Is it just practical or is it, you know, is it something, you know, the other day I, I had to make an emergency trip to the grocery store and I, quite, I saw quite a few people and I, people are out and about. Can you speak to what are good measures, the aggressive good measures? Is it just not going out? Is it just, just show, what's good social distancing at this point for a big city like New York, you would, how would you explain that? Sure. New York City, I mean, it is the density of the population, okay. which makes cities like that more prone to outbreaks such as this one. So when you have lots of people in confined areas uh, with lots of contacts and exposures, we know that the spread is going to be greater. So uh, good social distancing in cities like New York uh, is going to be more important than it is in, you know, uh, Midwest Kansas, uh, where where there's not as many people in a defined area. So uh, hand washing. Okay. Uh, we we know that uh, the virus does is spread typically by respiratory droplets from coughing, sneezing, breathing to some degree will spread some uh, virus particles, which can land on surfaces and then potentially be spread. If you contact that surface at a you know a short period of time, we the data is still not clear on exactly what that looks like. But the biggest spread is from person to person through respiratory droplets. That's the biggest spread, gotcha. and then okay. touching your mouth, nose, and eyes. Uh, so if you can cover your cough, wash your hands, and and maintain decent social distancing, uh, you're going to be relatively safe. Do you think it's a good idea to keep some of those cities where it's where it's kind of clustering like that under kind of a shelter in place scenario and maybe letting other parts of the country um, get back to work or what? Yes. If you were kind of in charge of that, what? how would you set up the scenario and what would be the timetable on it? Sure. I would definitely uh, make it more isolated uh, in the quarantine and the social distancing type of scenarios that we're seeing uh, in New York where the outbreaks truly are. The, the places in the country where you're not seeing a lot of cases, certainly easing up on those restrictions, letting people get back to work sooner and opening businesses sooner uh, is definitely going to be helpful. You know, back in the days, we used to have what we call MASH units, you know, which was army surgical hospitals, mobile arm, army surgical hospitals. You know, the government should be able to come up with, instead of army hospitals, ca call it mobile America, you know, support hospitals. And they should be uh, able to be put up relatively quickly in cities like New York City that you can take care of these outbreaks and help the local hospital by offloading some of the patients to these mass units if you had those uh, available. Those are the types of things you really need to do to help keep the country going from a financial standpoint. Mm, no, that's that. So let me let me dive into one of these questions. This, I saw this kind of debate going back and forth on Facebook, and there was a kind of a, you know somewhat influential evangelical leader that was posting stats, you know, day by day, and they were kind of giving leaning in a little bit more to the panic side of things and saying, "Hey, this isn't getting worse. The the curve is steepening." We'll come back to the overall contag you know contagious numbers. But for now, talking about the death rate, somebody responded trying to give context and say, hey, well, you know, the, yeah, the numbers are increasing. Um, you know, we don't really know what China's numbers are, but the U.S., you know, even if it is number one, the death rate is low. And the person responded with this. I said, I repeat, as I've repeated every day, when people try to make assumptions about death rates, 
it is not yet possible to calculate death rates. To calculate death rates, you have to follow a given set of cases to their final disposition, simply dividing the number of deaths into the number of cases at any given moment in time won't yield the right answer, nor is using the Mrs. or Mrs. Institute method of, quote, 19 days after the 100th case, unquote, nor is number of deaths per 100,000 population. Why? Because the numerator is constantly changing and will continue to change until every case has either resulted in death or recovery. Their methodology is purely arbitrary. I'm amazed, frankly, that the Mises Institute is putting out such misleading information. I've never seen a better example of lies, uh, damned lies, and statistics. I would also note that all the Mises Institute, and he just talks about how it was dated a little bit. Do you think, so how would you respond to that response? Are we just at a loss to calculate death rate, or is that not how it works? Like, how, how, do, how do we do that? Well, your reader is exactly right. The data is being, again, the narrative is uh, being presented with the worst case scenario. That's why in the first week of this, when we really started uh, shutting things down, they were reporting, quote, the death rate of being in the four range. Uh, and it still is. I mean, if you if you calculate it the way it's being calculated, and that is the standard right now. So your reader is correct that the standard is, you know, the, the number of deaths over the total number that has been reported. The problem with that, as your reader says, is denominator continues to grow the more people you test. So your death rate is going to decrease. And, and that's what we've seen. So our death rate in the United States is 1.6 compared to uh, the worldwide average of around four. Your reader's absolutely right. And, and that's not a good number. But again, they, they use that initially to scare people. And then they've continued to use it. But once it started in the United States to drop off significantly from the four number that they used initially, they quit reporting it. So now they don't report death rate in the United States uh, in, in really any of the mainstream media uh, announcements because it looks so much better than the worldwide average. It, it is using the data in whatever narrative you want to use it. But yeah. No, no, no. That, that's that's good. And, and uh, interestingly enough, I think he was arguing. So he was responding to people that were saying the death rate was low, like in the one point two to one point seven range, because they were they were basically saying, "Hey, that you shouldn't panic." And he was saying, "Well, you can't really calculate the death rate." And I think he was sort of implying that it's it could be actually way higher than we think. But you're oh, saying I, you're saying no, it's going to go in the other direction, or. Yeah, that I, it's going to go in the other direction. It's not going to continue. Each case of coronavirus is going to end up one of two ways. You're going to get better or you're going to die. Okay, those are the only two scenarios you can have. You either improve and, and you're resistant then to it, or or you don't get better and, and you pass away. So he, he's right that you really, it's like looking back at our H1N1 from 2009. We now know what the total numbers were uh, on average. And so we have the, those people either died or they got better. So looking back 10 years ago, we certainly can say what the death rate was for H1N1. We won't be able to say that with the coronavirus until this entire episode is resolved with everyone either dying or getting better. Then we will be able to give you an accurate number of the death rate. But right now on a trend, the trend of the death rate is still in the 1.6, 1.5 range, it's been as low as 1.05 on, on one particular day. But it, 
in between, you know, one and two, we're definitely going to see that's where it's going to level out at somewhere between one and two. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So that makes sense. So the way they're kind of calculating is not a final number, but it's a trend in a statistical yes. uh, range. And, and you're saying it's going to be land most likely between one and two based on what we're seeing right now. In the United States, correct. In the United States, yes. Uh, and then the other the other part is, you, you know, he was on that thread talking about it's we're really seeing a, a, a steep incline in the curve. So we, we talked a little bit last time about flattening the curve. Do you agree with that interpretation that we are seeing a steep incline um, right now with the numbers of, of spread of the disease? No, the only re- reason we're seeing a steep incline is because we're doing so much more testing. We, we anticipate a steep incline because we're going to be testing a lot more people and a lot of them are going to be either minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic. Uh, and a lot of those will, you know, not have any significant complications. So once, you know, we've got all kinds of private labs now uh, testing. So we're, we anticipate the numbers going up and that curve should be steep at this point. But when you look at the, uh, the number tested compared to 330 million of our population, the number is still very low. Mm. Our infectivity rate based on what we're seeing right now is still only 0.03%. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's still very low. No, that makes sense. So in essence, kind of what he was saying about the death rate should be applied to the, the curve and because we really, you know, you're looking for trends in that as well. And you're building into it the idea that, man, we, we just haven't tested enough people yet to be able to draw any conclusion about the steepness of the curve. Is that right? Uh, that's correct. Um, now, so the other thing is... The, the next area I want to talk about, because the, the big news that you saw everywhere this week was, you know, U.S. goes number one in cases and people were using that as sort of as a marker for the failure of the Trump administration, that you know, kind of orange man bad scenario. And it, it's all his fault somehow. But the, the idea is, you know, U.S. number one. So maybe maybe there. in fact, there was a I don't know if you saw this earlier, but there was a New York Times article. And I think it came out uh, March 26th. It said the U.S. now leads the world in confirmed coronavirus cases. And the sub, this you know, sentence right below that is following a series of missteps. The nation is now the epicenter of the pandemic. And of course, the missteps were on the part of the administration, and they go through and talk about that. So first. Um, do you think that number is reliable at all that the United States is first in the coronavirus amount? Do you, what, do you th- what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, again, this is using data to uh, present a narrative. The only way you can compare uh, country to country is doing it per a, a, a set amount of population. So, yes, we anticipate our numbers to be higher because we have 330 million people compared to Italy and Spain which is a tenth of that. So if you compare numbers per 100,000 population, you're going to see a very different scenario. We're not going to be number one. Uh, I, don't, I haven't calculated those, and the New York Times certainly didn't put that in there. But that's the more accurate way to compare country to country is uh, the number of cases per 100,000 people. They're just giving you a strict one number. But again, if you have a country of 10 people, and they have one case, and you've got a country of a thousand people, and they have ten cases. Well, guess what? We've surpassed them. But right. what's that tell you? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Without without giving some sort of context to the uh, population size, that number means absolutely nothing. That's just a headline. And I'm curious: uh, Do we know, or do we care? Like the number of persons who've tested negative versus. Um, positive. And also, what is the turnaround period for a person who takes the test? 
is what are the waiting results like? It's getting better. Uh, different labs are different. I mean, we're, they're talking about a point of care testing. A uh, point of care testing is like you go to your doctor's office and get a rapid strep screen. Okay. And, you know, you can have the results back in, you know, 10 minutes or a, a, a flu test in your doctor's office. Those are called point of care testing. Gotcha. And they're working on one for coronavirus. And that will be, you know, a rapid turnaround test, probably 20, 30 minutes. The current test that gets sent off to the lab, depending on which lab it goes to, if it goes to a state lab, uh, typically you can get it back within 24 hours. Uh, the two big labs, Quest and uh, LabCorp, uh, those have been taking about 48 to 72 hours turnaround time, but all of those are improving with the volume going up. So uh, there's other independent private labs that are uh, have better results as far as timing goes. But so anywhere from, you know, if the point of care comes, we'll see them in 30 minutes. Uh, otherwise, it's going to be between one and three days to get the results back. And once again, you mentioned on the previous um, interview that if you're showing symptoms and if you have a fever, you should get tested. Or what are your thoughts on who should go and get a test? You have to, most most states still require some sort of criteria. So a fever by itself okay. is not a criteria. Gotcha. If you've got shortness of breath, uh, fever, cough, and other symptoms, and you've been exposed to someone ah, yeah. uh, or in your uh, high-risk group, then you can probably be tested. But if you're if you're a young, healthy 25-year-old and have a fever of 101, no exposures, no cough, uh, you're a little achy, uh, and you go, they're not going to test you typically unless you've had uh, exposure to someone directly. Because uh, that's typically just this time of year with all the other viruses and um, illnesses that go around. And, you know, we're getting back into uh, strep season too for the kids. So we're going to see a lot of kids with uh, streps, with headaches and body aches and fevers uh, and sore throat. So I've seen it floating around to people, you know, kind of debating. Uh, apparently there was one of the last, I think it was maybe it's SARS where China was found to be later under reporting their numbers and not that it, maybe it doesn't even matter, but do you think that we could have any confidence in the, in China's numbers at this point? I think our confidence level should be fairly low for China to give us accurate data. What we do see, uh, you know, their death rate from what they have reported is 4% compared to our 1.6%. So their death rate is higher. But again, if you compare their infectivity rate, if they've reported accurately, the infectious rate for China with, you know, the billions of people they have is extremely low. They, they contained it basically to the Wuhan area. And even in that uh, area, their infectivity rate for China was very low. Gotcha. Well, I think, you know, you've helped us uh, once again, clarify some things here. Maybe just based on what you're reading, what you're seeing out there, I may be putting you in a bad position here, but what, you know, Dr. Fauci said between 100 and 200,000 Americans this year, what would be your, your best guess if you had to say, you know, probably we're looking more like this number uh, the rest of this year? And what do you think would be the timetable? Or is there just no way to tell it right now? I believe that the coronavirus is going to peak and then start to trend down like every other respiratory virus we see this time of year. I think we're at 1,700 cases now, death, deaths in the United States. We know that H1N1, when it went through, it took about 12,500 lives in the United States. Uh, I would see with all the measures we've undertaken, I don't see that we're going to exceed that 12,500 number unless somebody just absolutely, unless we, we completely ignore all the warnings and we go back to 
absolutely, completely life as we did before, which isn't going to happen. I mean, that's not realistic. Uh, people are going to be more cognizant. Uh, they already are. I mean, even out in public, I mean, people will come up and, and get ready to shake your hand or get ready to give you a hug. And all of a sudden they'll, they'll remember and they'll, they'll step back. Sure. <laughs> and th that's going to go on for some time. So I don't see this at, at where we're at now and knowing this time of the year we're in. Uh, I cannot see us uh, hitting more than uh, what we did with H1N1 in, in the you know uh, 10 to 20,000 death range based on what we see. So with uh, President Trump's, I guess he expressed that he would like to see the economy back up and running and open churches, be able to have churches by Easter. And I think it's April 12th. Is that Easter? So what are your thoughts on that? There's been such a wide range of responses. People think he's nuts. He's crazy. I would agree with him. And sure. I would like to see that as well. And I think it's very possible that in areas unlike New York City. Sure. Yeah. You know, the rural Kansas, the southern Indianas, uh, you know, the places that have not seen the impact, I can definitely see them easing the restrictions and allowing people to congregate again. That'd be awesome. That's good. Um, and last thing, Dr. Dan, are you still in the hospitals working with the patients? And how did that one uh, coronavirus patient turn out? Have you, have you guys seen any more? I'm working... Uh, this week, I work about 40 hours this coming week again. Uh, so, yes, I'm still working. Uh, that patient did well, uh, got off the ventilator and uh, went home. We have seen just one or two other positive cases. It's pretty, you know, the incidence is pretty low around our area. So it's, it's not bad. But the problem is, you know, you have to, everybody who comes in with wheezing and coughing until you rule them out, you know, it's full gear and uh, a lot of time to take care of the patient uh, just because of the restrictions and the requirements needed to protect everybody. Uh, that's awesome. And, you know, we appreciate you getting out there and doing that, man. It's amazing. Um, anything is the is the malaria kind of treatment still still the go to at this point? Is it still helping people? Still helping. And I think it's going to be again, I think the FDA needs to stay out of this, basically, and let the docs and the People try these drugs. We know they're safe in individuals. Uh, we've used them for, you know, decades in uh, other diseases. So why all of a sudden you'd want to put a restriction on it just for this particular disease is really unusual. Um, again, I, th I think we've got too much government uh, involved in some of these decisions. And I think uh, this crisis is uh, actually restricted some of our liberties. And if we don't uh, start taking some of our liberties back, uh, we're going to allow the government to run over us. Uh, here in Kentucky, the governor created a hotline for citizens to call and report people who aren't social distancing. So wow. they're reporting uh, people on golf courses and they're reporting uh, people congregating uh, down in the you know, uh, some of the shopping districts, uh, and they've got a hotline set up and the governor gets on TV and, you know, basically reprimands the people who are out doing these things. I mean, it's really f disheartening to see some of our liberties, uh, being taken away, uh, over this. Man, that's wild. I, <laughs> I didn't even know that. That's crazy. In Kentucky too. I, I would think the people of Kentucky would not have that. <laughs> Maybe, maybe uh, too many folks in Lexington. But anyways, uh, 
Um, yeah, so uh, one question I did forget to ask you, the, the ventilator situation, you know, one of the other headlines keeps popping up, you know, the kind of a doomsday scenario, like hospitals are running out, we don't have enough of this. Is that is that accurate? What do you foresee with the hospital equipment, maybe US wide, maybe it's a different story in New York. Um, just maybe talk about that as we wrap it up here. Sure. So hospitals in hard hit areas like New York City, those hospitals are going to see a problem with the number of ventilators they need. Now, what the government could do and should do is, you know, they basically now shut down all the outpatient surgical centers. There are dozens of surgical centers in New York City. Each one of those surgical centers has between four and eight operating rooms. Each one of those operating rooms could be converted into an intensive care unit. Uh, uh, they've already got, if you really, the worst case scenario, the anesthesia machines that we you go on when you get put to sleep, those are ventilators. I mean, worst case scenario, you could open up every one of these outpatient surgical centers and have anywhere between four and eight ICU rooms in each one, plus their uh, pre-op and post-op recovery areas hold anywhere from 10 to 20 patients. So if you wanted to basically, you know, put a bunch of corona patients in a ward type of setting, which we used to do a lot, uh, you could take care of a lot more patients and you could pay the owners of these surgical centers that are currently shut down. The government could pay these owners uh, rent, basically, to utilize these facilities and, and help off, you know, offload some of the patients that are being, uh, uh, you know, hurt by waiting in the hospital or not being seen. Uh, so there's lots of other options uh, that are available that they're just not utilizing at this point. So I, I think the ventilator situation in certain hospitals is a problem. Overall, it's not a problem from a from a general United States standpoint. At this, it's not a problem. It is going to be a problem in certain hard hit areas. So insightful. Uh, well, Dr. Dan, we want to thank you so much for the taking the time to be with us and doing this interview. Thank you for your service. I think the medical professionals are seen as like the armed forces right now. So <laughs> we, you guys are on the front line just day to day with patients and just thank you all around for all your service and your time and your insight today. We really appreciate it. I appreciate you inviting me back and I uh, hope your governor, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, well, <laughs> I, I pray for you and your governor. Let's just Thank put it you. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. We hope you found that interview informative and hopefully a break from the, all the mainstream media you might be experiencing right now. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions, and comments. You can comment on Instagram and Twitter at FreeMindFM and on our Facebook page, FreeMindPodcastFM. And you can also email us podcast at FreeMind.FM. We actually may have an additional episode coming out this week, so keep your eyes peeled for that. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. You are here.